Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Thank you for joining the Purpose Driven Sobriety Podcast. My name is Christine, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I want to thank Sally Payne for sponsoring this episode. Um, Sally is a great friend to us in recovery. And Sally, I just appreciate your support so much. Finally, finally, today as my guest, I have Mr. Pete Sousa. So um, thank you for coming here to talk to me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I, you know... Um, By the way, I, I'm, I'm Pete an alcoholic. Hi, Pete. Yeah, wanna, I've, I've known you yeah. for a minute mm-hmm. yeah. um, inside the rooms of recovery, yeah. and um, I have admired you. Um, see, this, is, this goes to show my selfishness and self-centeredness. I've admired you because you're a lot like me. Yeah. Yeah, right? Um, I think I've it, admired you because you're like me. There you, there you have it. Well, and, and I say that in the sense that, you know, I just, I lived in shame for so long before I got sober, that that it was either I just come fully out in the middle stage or I die. I mean, I had I had to, you know, I I haven't practiced anonymity since the day I got sober. The minute I got sober, me neither. Um, I I have just been out there because I had to because I knew if I hid something, I would end up hiding me completely, and so. Um, I, I've, I've been out there. And so I love that about you. Um, just because there's su- still such a, a stereotype when, when we talk about alcoholism and addiction and stuff, that, that seeing someone that's successful, um, that, that is articulate and well put together, and they've had this struggle just gives that person hope. And, you know, um, and you run your own podcast and you're, you're vocal about recovery. Um, and I just, I just love you so much, but I've never heard Heard your story so just like with you we just tell what it was like what happened and what we're like now so I just I want to hear all the things about you Pete Sousa <laughs> so first of all it is a great honor to be here to, to be on this platform with you and to share this Thank platform you. with you today Amen. Um, I, I can relate so much to what you said because I did have such shame as to who I was and I'm starting to uncover all that now that uh, I, I believe the only way for, for my only way to heal has been to do it w- with accountability. Right. Within, within the rooms of recovery and then outside of mm-hmm. them, too. I just there's something about going all in uh, with. Yeah, I'm a sober person. Like if you if I'm having a conversation with you and there's an opportunity where that would come up. It's going to come up. Isn't it funny? Because I don't intend, I don't meet someone no. and go, okay, how can I tell them or how can I? But it's, but it's just, it's like almost natural now. It's who I am. Yeah, I love it. And, I and, love it. And I'm not ashamed of it. And there was yes. a point in my life when 
I was having trouble getting sober, where I became so preoccupied and wrapped around the axle with, who am I going to tell? Mm-hmm. Who am I not going to tell? Mm-hmm. How am I never going to drink again? How am I not going to drink at my son's wedding? You know, which by the way, I've never got married and I don't have a son. But that's <laughs> but the, if you did, what would you do? <laughs> that's the stuff that keeps us drunk, you know. Um, so I appreciate it. I was talking about a buddy of mine the other day who's having problems with his. He's just having problems in his family, and the mental wellness is a thing. And mm-hmm. he is a sober guy, but. Um, you know, I thought to myself, and I shared it with him, like, I feel like the only way that this person in your life could get well is if they just embrace who they are. And, right. And oh, I'm not man. a doctor, and I can't really tell them that, but uh, maybe I'm out of line telling them that, but that is my experience, right? Like, as, as, as it goes to sobriety, like, I just had to really embrace it and love um, the, the aspect of being sober. Mm-hmm. And when I started to love that, like, you know, being an alcoholic and an addict – wasn't all that bad. My my story, like as you like, to give you some context, was you know there was, al- nobody talked about drinking too much. My mom eventually did. To my dad was an alcoholic. Oh okay. Functional, like as you would say, whatever right. that is. Yeah, I, know, know? I know, right? We always yeah. cringe when we hear that I know. word. It's like, were you really? You do because there's no much, there's no such thing as a functional alcoholic <laughs> because bullshit. if you yeah because you're what do your relationships look like? Right. You know what, what I mean? What is it? What does it look like between your ears? Mm-hmm. More importantly, honestly, with my dad, I never, we never ended up knowing because he always, you know, he provided, he worked hard. He was, he loved me so much and he really showed me a lot of grace. I mean, he would get you right back in line. He was like iron fist approach. And, but, um, he, he loved, he loved the heck out of me, but he, he he was, he was an alcoholic, you know? So he was almost like this big, toddler you know like his emotions would swing one Mm -hmm. way or the other whether he was drinking or not right um and my mom certainly i think they got married in i don't know 1970 right Mm -hmm. which just like my mom was an italian woman from just like right outside of philadelphia my dad this guy from connecticut and uh they got together and it was just like everybody would get fall down drunk i think in their crowd and that was the way it was and I think my mom, she wasn't like a heavy drinker. And I think at some point she was like, wait a minute, what have I got myself into? But she had her own issues, I think, at the time of like self-worth and all that stuff. Right. Uh, that she was like, this is this is what it looks like to be in love, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know. And uh, I think that, you know, she sort of came to uh, by the time my brothers and I were younger when crazy stuff used to happen with so my dad. So you have two, two, two other, older brothers. Two older brothers. Two older brothers. And you were raised, where were you raised? I was raised outside of Philadelphia. Outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, Got so it. like right in like southeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, yeah, that's where we grew up. My dad worked for Amtrak. Oh, okay. And so that's why we ended up living there. He worked for Amtrak pretty much our whole life. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, yeah, he was, um, he was, he would just like do like, there would be instances with my oldest brother, like where my dad would pick him up from a dance and would have been drinking. Mm. And then he would take, you know, my brother and let's say his date at the time home. Mm -hmm. And my brother's date would be like, your dad's drunk. And you know, like that's the kind of stuff. And it would get back to my mom and my dad would have, I'm sure shame about that, but nobody would ever talk about Mm -hmm. it. Well, back then, yeah, you, you you didn't, I mean, it wasn't anything, you didn't have to wear your seatbelt. You didn't, I mean, there was such a different world. And and part of it I romanticize about, it's almost like euphoric recall. Like my dad, 
driving around with my Uncle Marty, who I, I love the two of them, but they're both alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And my Uncle Marty, and they would just drive around with Budweiser cans like right. wide open. And they'd already be <laughs> drunk when they got in the car. Nuts. And it was just like the way it was, oh, you know? Man. I remember my dad and my Uncle Marty were working on something at my neighbor, Mr. Schnebley's house, and they were loaded. It's like four in the afternoon. And my Uncle Marty has a hammer, and he just bashes my dad's hand. And it's just one of those things like, they laughed about forever, but it was like, you look back now and you're like, you guys were wasting That was wrong. <laughs> yeah, playing with heavy machinery. Um, so I, I knew I had this thing early on because my mom would tell me. Really? She would just be like, and also too, I was, and, and, and I don't sit here like, I'm not one to talk about like people and the medicine they take or what they're prescribed. Sure. But for me, I got prescribed like Adderall or Ritalin when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I can remember taking it, Christine, and I was like, wow, this... I was like in third grade and I was like, man, this works. Like really? feeling like I was on point, like, like my circle had been rounded out and then I could. Well, but that's what that medicine is supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. But... That's a great point. No, that's a great point. But for me, it was but. more, but for me, it was but. more. And that's There's true. There's always a but in there our is story. A but. Well, and there is a but with a lot of drugs. Like, yeah, there is. Like that's okay. Yeah. It did serve a purpose, I guess. And it did make me feel more in in tune uh but it also made me feel like i was finally able to operate with everybody else like okay there was something wrong with me and now i took something and now there's nothing wrong with me right oh i can see how that could start early programming really exactly yeah well or enforced programming which was already naturally genetically installed just kind of activated exactly and that's what i believe i believe that it was already installed Mm -hmm. and something like that activates it and then I, I remember, too, when I was in, and you've probably heard me say this in meetings, but I, when I was in eighth grade, I was I would go to the dances, and I was so scared mm. to talk to girls. And uh, when I was in ninth grade, we started to drink, and I couldn't wait to get there. Oh, you know? wow. And it was like, I have this, finally. Right. I have this thing. Ease and comfort with being with other people. That was my, I, I mean, and I grew up Catholic, going to church, great relationship with, you know, people in the church. Uh, but my first spiritual experience was drinking, you know, six or seven Miller Lights with my friends at a park in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, being like, wow, Oof, this is, I can't believe this. And you know, the first. I'm finally myself. I'm mm. finally comfortable. And you know what mm-hmm. I was doing? I started lying about stuff. You know, when I was drinking, like right, right away, I, I'm, I'm telling tall tales uh, and, you know. Trying to keep up with them. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so throughout high school, uh, I was always around the alcohol, you know, like, and you notice, I've heard somebody tell their story once when I started to drink on like weekends and then all of a sudden it became my focal point of the entire middle of the week. Where are we going to drink next weekend? Mm, Like planning whose house, Mm -hmm. who's going to get the beer. I was so obsessed. And there was almost an ease and comfort found by even the planning of it. Yeah. Kind of like when, when a doctor starts writing that script, and all of a sudden you, you feel actually a little bit better just by them writing it yeah. out. It's strange how that yeah. works. <laughs> That's yeah. a great example of how really screwed up the programming is. Right? You mentioned the programming like that. Yeah, that makes you feel good. You haven't yep. taken anything or yep. anything. Your but shoulders start to drop, and, you know, uh-huh, yeah, I get yeah. it. And, and so the planning <laughs> was a big part of the addiction. And I think, you know, I was an athlete in high school, and I was um, – I love just sports. I mm-hmm. just love sports, and I love playing sports. That was my first love, like a natural love. Like, I mean, and there was a little bit of substance to this, but, I mean, coming home from church, we would get Dunkin' Donuts, 
and I would sit in front of the television, probably like sixth grade, with like the Philadelphia Inquirer, with all the football games and all like the notes on the games and the betting lines, and I would put on NFL Today with oh, like wow. Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek, and that was one of my first highs. Like, this is the best ever. Like, I got sports. I have Dunkin' Donuts. I have this. <laughs> what else? This yes. TV. It was a great. You know, little kid. That's it was awesome. the greatest. But I once I started to drink all that stuff. I still love sports and paid attention to mm -hmm. it, but I had a brand new passion. You took that seat, yeah. And it was alcohol, and it was an ego came with that. Mm -hmm. I really think my ego was taken into. I, I really didn't. I, I don't know what I was before I started to drink, but once I started to drink, I thought I was something important, or I had sure. to keep up this, whatever. Because now I, was your dad still drinking during that time? Oh yeah, he yeah. Uh, he stopped drinking. But it, if you, you, the thing about my dad is he was so dry when he would stop drinking. He stopped drinking for like a year, but you, I couldn't tell because he was still oh, a nut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. He was, nothing changed. Right. And then my mom always says that our friend. Uh, Mr. Pulliam, Dr. Pulliam, he was a dentist, said to my dad, you know, you were a lot more fun when you were drinking. And then my dad just started to drink again. Because <laughs> uh, my dad was like a fun guy amongst like Well, crowds. and you get a dry drunk and you're, uh, most of the time at least in that situation, you're like, please, please. have a drink. <laughs> just please have a drink. Yes. So you can be, yeah, more 100%. So, Man. 100%. So, yeah, he drinks. Both my brothers were drinking all the time. And, and I knew once I got into high school, like that I, I, I was like, something's wrong with me, but I don't care. Mm -hmm. Or not even something's wrong with me. Just like in the back of my mind, I thought I like this way too much. Right. So, and, and it, but, but it was, I don't know why anybody wouldn't do it. It, 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 it. I was able to talk to girls, which was a huge part of my drinking. I was always insecure and scared to talk to females. Mm -hmm. I looking back, like I never had any sisters. You know, I just had my mom who would like dote on me. Right. I didn't have any friends that were girls or any interaction with women until I finally started to establish some some friends in high school but I just didn't know how to talk to, to the opposite sex it was like it was like a whole no, it was like aliens have come down to earth and now you have to communicate with them it was more just fear right sure you know mm -hmm. so I, I would, alcohol is a huge part of that it was a huge part of the courage I would get up to talk to girls so I, I but I had my first big time consequence I, I started to evolve into like you know an athlete I, I never was as good as i wanted to be but good enough where i got a scholarship to play football at the university of richmond oh, amazing yeah well it was awesome so i get this scholarship and i go to play in this all-star game in the city of philadelphia uh like the spring of my senior year and this doctor is like because they wanted to clear you just give you physicals sure. you know and this doctor's like hey like Something's wrong. Your heart is beating funny. Like, let's get it checked out before we can clear you to play in this game. This is spring of 1995, almost summer, my senior year. And I go to a cardiologist, and he looks at it. He's like, you have cardiomyopathy. It's viral cardiomyopathy. Like, you probably won't ever play football again. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. And, uh, and it, he said it could have been caused two ways. It could have been caused by um, – you could have had a virus that went through your body, and when the virus went away, it had hung around for so long, really your body is so used to fighting the virus, when it goes away, your body will attack your organs, right? Like, Oh, wow. Yeah, which, That's nuts. Or, yeah. or you can get it from alcohol and drugs. Oh! <laughs> yeah, and I remember this is my first real hardcore alcoholic moment at 18 years old. I was like, okay, it had to be the virus. Damn that virus. Yeah, right? Like, yes. I, I was right away. And I'm sure a cardiologist could be listening to this and think, well, there's uh, maybe I'm not putting it exactly right, but that sure is how I heard it. Right. 
Um, and there was no way anybody was going to get between me and my this liquid, alcohol. This alcohol, I, it was everything to me. And at, during my senior year, I had started to, my mom, I mentioned, was not an addict. Um, so I, I got into her medicine cabinet. Mm. Oh, my God. It was like hitting gold for somebody who likes to change the way they feel. She had all the prescriptions she hadn't finished were just sitting there. You know, all those things from surgeries, from right. going to the dentist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm taking this stuff going into high school as a senior, like flying high into high school. Now I'm on to, now I'm still drinking, but I'm onto this stuff thinking, well, this is even better than alcohol because nobody knows. Right. You right. can't smell it on you. No. You can't, and, yeah. and I'm a silly guy. So, I mean, and really, honestly, nobody did know. Unless my, my friends knew, because I started to tell Because you'd acted a little mm-hmm. bit different. or mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but I think that all this was the perfect storm leading to this heart problem. So I go to college. The University of Richmond keeps me on scholarship. Really? Coach Jim Reed, still my man to this day. He was like, we walked into your house and offered you a full scholarship. I talked to your parents. Like, you're coming to Richmond. And, you know, if you there was, there was like a... A small chance I was going to be able to play again. Of course, I would have had to stop drinking. Of course. And give my heart a yeah. chance to get better. So right? I, that was off the table. Again, like a total maniac, I'm thinking, well, I still do want to play again. So I'm, I remember I did stop. I never did took any pills or anything. But I still drank and just smoked marijuana so much. And I never got better. And like my heart never got better so I could play. Um, and I looked. That back, had to be that had to be heartbreaking for you, and, like a fish out of water. It's a and really, I my, I dove into an identity of of somebody who drank and did drugs, like it, well because you had such an identity you were walking into. I can't imagine how that must have felt. You know, regardless of how how good you were, you were good enough to get a scholarship. Yeah. So that had I mean going That's into yeah right. And so when that is. When, when you hit a wall on that, it's like pivot and what's left. Man, I can see that. I, and, and I still haven't totally like processed that because uh, it was a dream of mine. You know, as bad as you are or as good as you are or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, plenty of guys went to Richmond and went to play in the NFL. And so I'm thinking like I can play in the NFL. It's just a dream. It's a dream right. you've always had. Right. And uh, so right away that's gone. And mm. I, I never really – of course, you don't process anything when you're drinking that, that much. So I, I, right when I got to college, I became – and then all of a sudden you realize how much you can drink without, like, parents around and stuff. And in college, you can certainly find people who are going to be like-minded like that. And I almost used it to my um, advantage in a sense where, oh, look, look at me. Like, I'm still involved with the football team. Those guys are like me, and, and I'm friends with them. And now I'm friends with all the stoners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm friends with all uh, other guys that, that take drugs. I'm friends with everybody, you know. And uh, But really it was just one crowd to the next, just kind of changing who I was. I mean, I did develop really good friends on the football team and some friends that weren't on the team. But quickly those good friends became came to realize, like, I started to – I excuse me, like drinking way too much. Mm-hmm. And I was smoking weed all the time. But I found a way. I did get through college. You know, the second semester of my, I guess, junior year, we were. This was another, like, regular thing that would happen to me. You know, I they, I was under investigation for selling marijuana. We weren't even selling really? marijuana. But we were smoking so much right. that they figured we went to East Carolina and came back to school with a bunch of pot and word had gotten around. And the campus police were, like, all over. Like, you're selling marijuana. You're going to. 
you know, we're going to put you undercover. I was like, dude, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, but I had a six month period of, of my college experience, which every day I was worried I was going to get thrown out or arrested or I didn't know what, you know, but it's like, that's the baggage that alcohol and drugs brings, Mm -hmm. brings with it, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and there were all these broken relationships, right? Like, I don't know. I had no clue what it was like to have a relationship with a woman because I was always so drunk um, or drunk enough because I, I figured I needed the courage mm. to do this. Um, so I had no real relationships with women. All the relationships – I, mean, I and, and honestly, football was one of the best things that ever happened to me because that was – I mean, I, I, I bonded with those guys like where it was deeper than right. you know, the, out, the drinking buddy oh, stuff, which was, which was cool, and they're still some of my best friends today. Uh, even though I didn't play, I was so uh, died in the wool with that situation. But I got out of college, and I made enough connections and friends that ultimately I ended up getting a job in, in New York. A friend of mine who had gone to Richmond, like me, played football, he got hurt. Um, and he was involved with, like, football writing and stuff out of college. So I got a job with him, um, moved to New York City. And then I was really like school was out. I oh, mean, wow. and it's like anything I tell people. I moved up there. We started working for a football agent and for a football uh, writing company. I, it was my dream come true. And and I would, I showed up, you know, for the first like six six months. I was awesome, you know. And that's what I always tell people as part of my story, right? Like, as an alcoholic or a drug addict, like I c- I could go anywhere. And for the first like. Six hours, six months, six days, whether it was, you know, I, you were giving me a job or you were inviting me to your shore house or you were lending me your car. Mm-hmm. It'd be good for a little. Right. And then sooner or later, I was going to crash the car. I was going to steal something from your house. Or do and something you, to embarrass myself gonna, or you. Yeah, and yeah. you were going to want to fire me from your job. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, I, and it, I always, just the alcoholic was going to show up at some point in, in its real ugly form, mm-hmm. you know? Uh and that's what happened with this job. You know, I, I, I discovered I love doing drugs, too. I love specifically cocaine because it could help me stay awake and drink more. And I think that, you know, in my family, we struggled with that. My, we had that something in our brain, my brothers and I. We all liked that drug. It was just whatever. And, and it was, I would never, ever recommend anybody do any hard drugs, ever, but what that did was it expedited my – it, it hastened my bottom, you know. Like, really? Oh, yeah, because, you know, I watched my dad drink, quote, unquote, functionally forever. Mm-hmm. But the moment I started to do that drug, there was no way you could keep – I could keep up. You know, I was going to die or, or I was going to quit, mm-hmm. really. Um, but, I, you know, along this whole ride, I tried to get sober in 2002 – because I, I got a DUI, and but it was like I had a back problem, people mm. say. You know, I had people on my back, right? So let me go here. So everything I had, that job, you know, friends, I had, I had all that, those relationships had deteriorated. I was the person who had been gift-wrapped this great life, um, and it was all gone, you mm-hmm. know? Born on third base, thought I hit a triple. Mm-hmm. Like, that was my ego in my mm-hmm. life. I was so entitled, um, and now... I, I did have the gift of desperation almost, you know, in 2002. I went to my first meeting, and I, re- I mean, I was in bad shape. 
And now, is it still up in New York? No, now I'm back in Philadelphia okay, because I had it. to move home. Right? Oh. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so I'm back home, right? That's a little bit of a fall. <laughs> I'm back yeah. home. Yeah. And and everybody knows, like, the jig is up. I'm the last one to know. You know, my buddy Scott, who's a really great guy, he's been part of my recovery for even back since 2002. When you're an alcoholic, you're usually the last one to know. Mm, yeah, you know? Right? You're Isn't that amazing how that works? That's what happened with me. And you and can I've just heard look back story. and just go, what the f- mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So I started to um, go to meetings and my life started to change. And I went to meetings for 90 days. And, you know, I was 27 at the time, I think. 25, no, probably 24, 25. And I, uh, I just, I don't, I wasn't, I, I say I wasn't, I, I don't ever want to say I wasn't ready as an excuse for somebody else to say you aren't ready. Right. Because I think the moment people set foot in an AA room, they have found home. Right. And so yeah, something in them is somewhat ready, but it, yeah. Yeah, but but I was at a party and and uh, people were passing around weed, and I was like, well, I'll smoke weed and I won't drink. And for a while, that was fine. But like the moment that my brain, that part of my brain, gets activated, I've experienced at some point. It's uh, alcohol is going to break through. Yeah, see, that makes me nuts when people yeah. when they're when someone will come in the room and and they'll <laughs> say they're they're sober but but they still smoke weed and it's like, okay. It's just not my deal. It's well, just... it's it shouldn't. Be, it, <laughs> I, it, I, it's my humble opinion. It shouldn't yeah. be anybody's deal. You mind altering is mind altering is mind altering. Yeah. You know, ox, oxy, heroin, weed. Yeah. It when you go to change your state of mind, that's not ever going to be a good thing ultimately i I can't when when that comes up you know i can't sponsor you you certainly can't be my sponsor Mm -hmm. i mean really if we're going to be real like there's going to be a breakdown in our real abilities to talk about sobriety you're just not going to be able to go where i want to go it's like being kind of pregnant you're (laughs) you're either you're either sober clean clean sober same damn thing you're you're either that or you're not (laughs) yeah and i've been lucky enough that i'm surrounded by people like you which are like you know i talk to a guy every morning my buddy murph and you know you could say we're sort of hardcore alcoholics and i'm less vocal about that side of it than he is but he's like dude like we talk about what you're talking about Mm -hmm. he's like you're not fucking sober. No. Like, that's it. It's you're just not. Over. That's right. Yeah. So, so the, if, because if I, if I, it, and you're right, if I, if someone were to ask me to sponsor them and, and they're in that type of behavior, n- n- no, because you're right. I can't be real with you. No, I mean, because I, I never know if you're going to be in your proper mind or not. Well, yeah, like if I, if I go up to your house in the middle of the day that's and you're smoking weed or something, it's like, that's just not in my program. Like, as a sober person, I don't want to go, I don't, even if you're not an addict, like, I'm not crazy about being around anybody smoking weed in front. You know what right. I mean? So that's just that's a whole thing that yeah. So I was very wrong when I thought I could do that mm. and stay sober. Mm. And I got a job in Colorado and the moment the plane touched down, I was away from all of my support system. I started mm-hmm. to drink again. And then mm. it was like, I mean the moment I drank, I went looking for hard drugs. Like, you know, it was like so now I'm in that place. Not only am I going back to drinking, the moment I'm drunk, I'm like I've heard Rob Lowe describe it, a sober guy, as like French fries and ketchup. Like if I was going to drink, I needed to get drugs too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That was just the way my brain worked. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, I didn't, just like being an addict, I didn't want that to be like what I thought. But I didn't even have any space to think about it. It was like literally like a, like a dog, like drunk, 
drugs? What's next? You know what I mean? Like, well, and did it make your mind stagger when when you realized? You know, because a lot of people have this um, this perception that once once you stop and you and you're clean or or sober for a little period of time and you start back, that you just kind of you kind of start over, right? <laughs> you just you just start over, have one drink, and you know, uh, the history of ever at least that I've seen is in a very short time. You are exactly where you left off when whatever happened to make you stop for that brief period of time and in what you're a thousand percent if right not worse and 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 you are so c- like committed to this lie that so the first night i drank i remember i ran out looking for drugs got some i remember my buddy joe who knew that i had a problem um was like he found me doing the drugs and you know, he was a young guy. He didn't know. He's like, you got to learn to walk before you can run. He, like, took him away. You know, threw him away. I don't know. You're doing like, it wrong. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, whatever. You know, I, either way, he was right in, one, in one, right. one form or another. But I can remember the night after that episode where I went looking for drugs, I went to Chili's with a couple of my friends, and I had three beers, and, f- and I was laughing. Mm-hmm. And I went home, and I didn't drink anymore. And so now I was, I was okay. I'm well, okay. Well, that's pretty normal. Yeah, I'm okay. Hey. Yeah, like, so, so you... Hang on to that Chili's night for the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> there know. was a time. Yeah. yeah. So and, and that'll keep you drunk for the rest of your life, really. So, But I started to drink again, and I give my parents such credit. My dad, you know, I told them, because I was such an alcoholic when I started to go to meetings in 2002. I had become such a wreck that I can remember. I, my, I, now I'm sitting in front of you. I look okay, mm-hmm. right? I look normal. I have a job, and I'm home for Christmas, and I make this like a – I'm going to start to drink again, just so you guys know. Like, AA is not for me. And I remember my dad was like, just sitting there. He's like, you're going to go down the drain again. I oh, remember that. No. Yeah. And my mom, you know, just just being like, I remember everybody was so disappointed. Mm-hmm. Just disappointed is the word. And uh, I, 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 it didn't matter. I was, right. you know, I was going to do what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I went back out there and put together another, a solid uh, nine years of just, um, hardcore drinking and using and, you know, jobs, big or small. Um, I would always kind of blow them up. You know, I worked in the NBA for a while. I did public relations. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, that w- enabled me to earn enti- – I was entitled to party all the time with that. I was going to party anyways, right? But I thought that now you certainly couldn't give me any sh- crap about my partying because I have a, a job. It comes with the territory. Job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the drugs are the same deal. And, uh, you know, I mean, just to kind of get through, to, to, like, the drinking and drugging side of it, there were so many major consequences, right? I mean, just, like, the stuff was crazy. Like, I got a buddy who now he's a head coach of Albany's basketball team. But he and I were living together in Philadelphia. And I reconnected with this girl from college who liked to party like I liked mm-hmm. to party. And a wonderful woman. We really connected. Like, but, and, I, and she's not even an addict. She was just kind of going through a phase. But we start to party. She moves it. This is like typical alcoholic behavior. I'm living with this guy, Dwayne. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, Dwayne, like Wendy's coming over. And now Wendy moves in. You know? <laughs> like, oh, okay. Like in like a stretch of like <laughs> 10 days. And Wendy and, and I are up every night doing whatever all night. Dwayne is like a normal man getting up, going to coach the Temple basketball team. And he's like, what in the world have, do I have here? And that wow. was like, there was a million stories like that. Mm-hmm. And I finally get to the end of my rope. And I, I'm, now, I'm, now I lose every job I had. It's 2011. It's the fall. 
and I'm trying to go to I'm trying to go to AA again, right? Like still in Colorado. No, now I'm back. So I went from Colorado. I bounced all over the place. Where you know, wherever you go, there you are. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. I went from I mean, literally, I went from Colorado to Charlotte to Philadelphia, working professionally, then back to Charlotte. Um, and then ended up back in Philly at rock bottom again, right? That was my, my parents' house was always. Based. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that yeah. is entitlement too. I, I mean, I should have been homeless. Mm -hmm. uh, and I kind of was in a sense, like I would go couch surf and stuff and it was just pathetic. Mm -hmm. So I, I was like, I'm going to go to meetings. And this is where the story gets awesome. I, 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 well, not quite yet. I, I, I'm going to meetings, but I can't, I can't stop drinking. So I'm just lying to people, right? I'm going to a meeting at, at, at 7 a.m. in the morning. I'm drunk by 10 a.m. Or if I'm going, if I'm at a meeting at five, I'm probably already drunk or mm -hmm. taking some. Finally, the magic happens when I ask this guy, Matt, to be my temporary sponsor because I just can't stop drinking. And I, I, I need to, and I need to tell people I have a sponsor anyways. So Matt is like, all right, I'll be your sponsor. And this is now I'm in Philadelphia. He takes me to, he said, I'll pick you up tonight and we'll go to a meeting. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. He picked me up. He's like, we're not going to go to a meeting. We're going to go to dinner. And I remember thinking like, ugh, I have to now like sit, like I'm sitting across from you. Right. Right. Like, and like if I was drunk or on drugs, you'd probably pick it up, especially mm -hmm. if the topic of our dinner mm -hmm. was around dr drinking and drugs. So now I'm like, I'm drunk. I'm, I'm taking some drugs and I got to sit across from this guy. And he's telling me his story. He's just telling me his story, you know? And he's like, he gets done. And he'd only been sober for a year. And he's like, you should go to rehab. And I remember thinking, like, okay. Like, really? It was like, uh, now, you can't see it, but Christine and I are sitting next to a window here at the Rogue Media Studios at the Alco building. And it was like the window opened up. God opened up the window, the last window for me, just a tiny bit. And I like just rolled through and fell on the other side. And that moment changed my entire life. I, 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 now I went home, I told my parents who I'm living with in my early thirties, hands on my hips, like, I've got an idea. I need, <laughs> I need, I need to go to, to rehab. And they're like, thank God, dude. Like, wow. so of course, in, in true alcoholic fashion, I'm like, but give me a week, you know? And of so, course, I got to get ready. Uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> get I my go, affairs in order. Uh, yeah, I have no affairs. <laughs> yeah, no, right? My affairs in order is my favorite line of all yeah, time. I'm I know. Happy you I said did that. the same one. I have yeah, to get my line. affairs in order. Yeah. So I left a message on my voicemail. I had no job, nothing going. And I said that I was out of the country on assignment for a oh. month, you know, when I went to rehab. So people would, you know, not think I <laughs> have was have no rehab. idea. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, everybody yep. knew. So, um, I go to rehab and my everything changed for me. And again, I'm not, I've seen AA work for people right mm -hmm. away. You know, that's, you go to meetings. I mean, my, my brother, Kevin, my brother, Michael, uh, my friend Murph, I get to tell you people in my life, my brother, Kevin just passed away and we'll talk about that. But he was a guy who went to meetings and got it. Um, and he actually went to treatment and didn't get it, which shows like, you know, when he, Finally, Same he, thing here. When, yeah. he, when he was ready, mm -hmm. when you're ready, there's nothing anybody can tell you wrong. Right. And when you're not ready, nobody can tell you anything exactly. right. Exactly. And for whatever reason, when that guy said that to me, I was ready. And I went to treatment, and uh, I just bought in. Like, my, I, like, all that stuff, I mean, you have this problem where you're killing yourself. And you have no life. Your life is, like, as small as, like, you know, the tip of your thumb, right? Mm-hmm. But you're guarding that small life 
everybody else has their hand out like, hey, like, let us help you. Like, we want to help you. And you're like, no, I'm, you're protecting this nightmare. And it's what you're accustomed to doing. Like, it, it makes zero sense. But when you're sick, you know, you don't know. Right. And so you get to treatment or you embrace recovery, however way you do it. And I really did. I was off the debate squad. I, I, you got a higher power for me? Let's go. Mm-hmm. And if I'm struggling with my connection with God, well, I'll use – I know that I've been to AA meetings where there's an incredible energy in there. Mm-hmm. And that energy is for sure bigger than me. And those people in those rooms, they crawled in there just like me. Right. But now I look at them, and they're like – these vibrant people. They're with like, laughing. They're laughing. What the hell? Larger than life personalities without drinking. You know, like happy, having fun, like you said. And uh, I believed in that. Like I believed in them. You know, and I never had an issue with, with God because mm-hmm. I was Catholic. And, you know, going to church was a pain in the ass because I would have rather been getting an early start on watching football or something. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like... I loved God. I never was like, oh, whatever. So, so you had, you did have a, a somewhat of a foundation at least. I certainly on that. did. Yeah, you my just didn't mom, maybe have that relationship. Yeah, my mom was always worked at Villanova University, a Catholic school, Augustinians, um, uh, priests, and brothers, always all around, awesome dudes. You know, so I, I got to know these guys, and there was a touchstone for me. Mm-hmm. I had a good relationship with God. I was an altar boy and I don't have any of those. Like I know there was awful stuff that happened, but I don't have any of that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I, I can tell you that it was not that hard for me to click back into that one, because I had that foundation, but forget even having that foundation. I was desperate, right? You know? So it's like, what do you got for me? Mm-hmm. And I started to follow directions a, a bit. One, one first big thing that happened for me in recovery that was a big turning point was I was dating a girl at the time. She was like, she's not good news. I was not good news when I went to treatment. Mm-hmm. This girl was not good news. She was sick like me. Mm-hmm. And she came to the rehab where I went and she was like, she was looking through her phone and a picture came up or, or, or a text message from a guy. I was like, well, who's the guy? Let me see the phone. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm 14 days sober and now I'm retreating back into the guy I was before I came in. And I remember I'm sitting in a chapel um, at the place I went to rehab, Karen, great place, and uh, very, like, spiritually faith-based, but it's, you know, if you need to get sober, it's go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I just remember thinking, like, probably asking God for strength and, and then being like, hey, saying to her, like, I'd like you to leave. It's just not, this isn't like. Wow. And, and wouldn't you believe, like, she got up and she left. I mean, it was a bit of, like, a, a thing for a second, I remember I was talking to my buddy Chris. He's like, is your girlfriend, does she have the dark hair? I was like, yeah. He's like, she's coming back up this hill. I was like, oh, my gosh. Wow. But she left, and I was my first experience with an esteemable act. Doing the, yeah, doing the right thing in the moment. Mm-hmm. For it, you. Yeah, and yeah. it felt awesome. Wow. Every time before that, I had always had to drink or take something or do something. For mm-hmm. as far back as I could remember, if there was a guy who I knew I had to fight, I was going to get drunk first before I was going to try to kick his ass. Mm-hmm. If there was a girl that I wanted to date, I was going to get drunk first before I could take her out. Right. I mean, that was the story of my life. So, and I, you know, it was all, you're just driven by a hundred forms of, of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I got finished treatment, like my 30 days were up. And another one of my first, like walking through a huge door, um, 
with God was they asked, they told me I needed to go somewhere else. Like, you're not ready to go home, dude. Like, you don't have a job. You know, you, you really don't have a place to live. Uh, you have no money. Like, there's a recovery house you should go to that we can set you up in. And I was like, okay, I'll go. Like, I was like, I fought it for a little bit, and then I was like, all right, I'll go. So now all of a sudden, I'm a grown, I'm, well, you're a grown man, right, when you're 18. But I'm now 33 or 32, and I'm living in this halfway house with, like, it might as well have been 50 other guys. It was probably 10. But it seemed like guys were, ever, you know, I opened up my top drawer in my room that I shared with two other dudes when I got there, and there was a dried-out bowl of SpaghettiOs in the top Oh, drawer. wow. <laughs> I remember thinking, shit, oh, no. man. My, this is where I've landed. My first, Did it feel like punishment? No, it felt like part of the process. Okay. It truly did because okay. at that point I had bought into like recovery and I wanted to be sober. So it felt like this You're was You're willing a, to do what, what I, was suggested. I was suggested. willing to go to any lengths. Gotcha. Uh, the first night I kind of pitched a fit where I, I tried to get out of there. Like I was like, I remember I, I'm trying to go to bed and this guy pops up every and he starts smoking cigarettes in the room, Ugh. like almost smoking in his sleep. Mm -hmm. And the guy below me is snoring like a chainsaw. And I remember being like, I don't know about this. You know, you're at rehab. You're in sure. a nice room with like right. everything. And you're sober, yes. which means every nerve in your body has been frayed. Yes. It's and like, you're not, you're, you're, you're exactly. You're like a live wire. Not your complete you know? best self, but yeah, yes, no. you're sober. <laughs> yes. And so yeah. I was like, I got to get out of here. We couldn't use the internet or computers, so, but there was a work resource center we could go to in the town of Bel Air, Maryland, where we were outside of Baltimore. Um, so I was like using this resource center to send out emails, whatever, mm -hmm. like you're not supposed to do. And I remember I, the subject heading on my hotmail at the time was, I got to get out of here. And it was a, an email to my brother, like a Hail Mary, like you got to get me out of here. And this woman was <laughs> like, break me out. this woman was like, you had to be looking for a job. And they're like, excuse me, sir, you're going to have to leave. I was like, okay. Cause oh, it, you know, she saw that I was writing yeah, a personal email. Busted. So that was, that was uh, a moment where, you know, I, I probably another turning point. I ended up another big moment for me in, in that uh, halfway house was like, you had to get a job to live there, Christine. Like they were going to kick you out unless you got a job. And everybody's working at like McDonald's or Starbucks. I remember one guy had a job at the mall at Hollister. Mm -hmm. And you would have thought he was like the host of the Tonight Show. It was like the greatest <laughs> job ever. You know, Marwan works at Hollister. Like, Ooh. oh my God. So... I, I went to Hollister. I couldn't get the job there. I couldn't get a job at Dick Sports. I couldn't get a job. There was a job I tried to get. There was a guy that looked like the Statue of Liberty, dressed up like the Statue of Liberty on the side of the road. Uh -huh. This place called Liberty Tax. Taxes. Yep. And I was like, Hey, can I can I get a can I get a job there? And this guy was like, No, like you know, like we we got it. We're good. We got guys. And I was like, Okay. I remember I was leaving. It was like 40 degrees in Maryland in January. He's like, you can come back in a week. He's like, they, they usually quit. You know, the Statue of Liberty guys. So at that moment, and this is the way I remember it, I walked out of there and I saw this Kentucky Fried Chicken and I was like, I'm going to go. I'm getting a job there. Almost, mm -hmm. like, almost like the attic thing. Like, I'm going to fuck them. I'm right. going to get a job here. Right. You know, because the people at the halfway house were like, you have to work. And I was like, I worked in the NBA. I'm not getting a job at... You know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, yeah, but guess what? So I go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> God sends me to Kentucky Fried Chicken. I believe this is like a spiritual journey. I sit in front of this woman. Her name is Sharika. And I'm, I'm t doing my interview because mm -hmm. I got a call back to mm -hmm. KFC. You know, so they call me. <laughs> I'm good. I got an interview. So Sharika's like, why are you in town? Why do you live here? And I told her some bullshit like I'm here for family. Um, and she gave me the job. And it turns out. She was 
a graduate of a recovery house living in Maryland. Really? She knew, wow. hey, this guy just needs, he needs he's an not, opportunity. He's not to the point of, he yeah, can tell me. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. But let's give him a chance. And she gave me a job. And so now I'm working at Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and I might as well have been flying a plane. Like, I, it was, I was scared to death. The register was like, I don't know, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't. <laughs> People would come up and order stuff, and I would be like, oh, Sharika, can you help me out, you know? And I would, there'd be long lines, and I wouldn't know, I wasn't sure about the register, I'd be like, I gotta go to the bathroom. They'd be like, dude, you got 15 people here, like, you know, get back in, oh. take care of it. Like, the fight or flight is coming mm-hmm. in. And that job was so important for me to just, first of all, to learn how to do something sober. I mean, I learned how to work the register. I learned how to work the drive through I could make the You learned sandwiches. you were capable. Totally. And it was a self. Just of, of whatever it may be, just that I'm capable. And it, was, it really helped my self-esteem, like to the point where, and I remember at the end of my tenure there at KFC, you know, people are assholes to people mm-hmm. that work in fast food. Oh, sure. And I started to get a kick out of it later on. And so this guy was going through the drive-thru, and I have the headset on and everything. I've told the story a million times, but it's worth telling again. And this guy is like, He's like, hey, uh, you know, uh, where, where is everybody? What's going on? You know, like, because the line's long and we're not at the window. And sure. I, have, I have the headset on. I'm at, like, a different part of the KFC. Now I'm, like, running shit. You know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry, sir. One of the chickens is loose in the back. <laughs> and the guy's like, you got chickens back there? Live chickens? I'm like, no. I was like, sir, I'll be with you in one second. So now I'm having fun and I'm laughing. And everything just started to change. After this experience, I, and this is what I tell people, too, like, I get a little freaked out sometimes. I still do um, when people are like, hey, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. Like somebody that, let's say a businessman that comes into the rooms and he's got a house and a wife and money and he's got stuff. He's like, how did you do it? I'm like, buckle up. Like, this is my story. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is how you have to do it. But, you know, my story was rehab, uh, halfway house. I lived with another sober guy in Jersey City, New Jersey for uh, close to a year. Or maybe a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So we're talking almost two years of like, you know, heavy duty recovery. Like, I wasn't ready to be around anybody drinking. I was. Sure. I just like, it, I really took my time, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me because, you know, now there's no place I can't go. Now there's really, I mean, as long as I have singleness of purpose, you know, sure. I, I can be where I where I need to be or want to be. You know, when they move the tables out of the way and. People are set to start dancing. I'm ready to go home. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just not, I don't stay up that late, period. Mm-hmm. I don't stay up past nine o'clock if it's up to me, mm-hmm. really. But um, I can go where, where, where I'm intended to go and where I have a purpose. But, you know, there was a time where my purpose was to be at the crib talking to another alcoholic mm-hmm. all night, you know, and I'm still going to end up talking to an alcoholic for a long portion of the day, early in the morning or late at night. Um, but I can do all the stuff now that I used to get drunk to do, whether it's talk to women, stand up to somebody, you know, the things we were talking about, yep. to achieve things um, that in- involve taking risks, good, healthy things, you know? Like, I can do all this now. I, I When I got sober, I started to, and like you did, I owned it right away. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you met me and I hadn't talked to you in a year, I was going to say, hey, like, I'm sober now. If there was an amends to make and it was the right time, I would say, hey, here's the deal. Here's where I'm at. You know, I, I, when I lived in Jersey City, my sponsor, Mike, and I 
we would go through, you know, the book, uh, 12 Steps in AA, I've said we use, you know, and I would read it with him every Wednesday night at his place in, uh, in, on Washington Street in Hoboken. And it was like a moving experience for me. I mean, I remember getting the feeling that I used to get from alcohol and drugs mm-hmm. out of what is going on with me and this guy. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I would leave his apartment. I'd be like, sky high from being vulnerable with another guy, telling him what exactly what was going on with me finally, and being able to, I guess, just relate, you know? Just you, being authentic. Yeah, without anything else. Yeah. Because yeah. that's not authentic, taking something to do something, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, and uh, I started to get back into working in sports. My passion was always to call um, games, to be a play-by-play guy as a kid. and. I ended up making amends to people that I'd worked for in the past in, in working in sports where I, I was back on that path. Um, and I was calling games and I was living, living in a hotel in Massachusetts, going to meetings all the time, just throwing everything I had into this purpose. Um, opportunities came and they went, right? That's sobriety. It's not all unicorns sure. and rainbows, right. you know? Um, and ultimately... You know, I, I remember, you know, I ended up started working in TV news. And I tell this story because it's kind of like the KFC. I had gotten a job in TV news on account of the fact that I was kind of good talking live, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But when I started to do TV news, they would put a camera or they would put a teleprompter in front of you and you had to read. Well, I'm dyslexic. That was horrifying. Oh, me. wow. So I started to do this job and I was terrible at it. And I'm failing like out loud. My Now, I'm in... Northeast Louisiana. It's not like I'm on NBC News every night. Sure. But I'm, hey, might as well, if it's 15 people, it might as well be 15 It's million. enough, right. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm struggling to read, but I'm like so dialed in and believing in my ability to go through stuff and overcome it. I'm like, I'll get this. And I did. You know, and, that, and then I ended up uh, doing that for about a year. And, you know, God, really, my journey took me to, to Waco. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did when I, was, I moved in, I was here, you know, we're in downtown Waco. I was over in 4th Street. My mom helped me move. And uh, I went to the, the group that you and I go to, mm-hmm. you know. I, I went to that. It was like, you know, I was like, I'm going to go to a meeting. And, and that was seven years ago. And that's been my home wow. group ever since, you know. And um, all, all great stuff has happened in my, in my life. Like, but again, ups and downs. You know, this year, uh, you know, my brother died. He was like a hero of mine. Mm. He was the, he's the reason I'm sitting here. I, I was not sure if I should start a podcast. Um, and he was like, you got to do, he was an advocate for what you and I advocate for, you know, recovering out loud. He mm-hmm. was like, we need people out there sharing their story. And he was an AA guy. He's like, I'm not saying like break traditions. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, carry your message. Sure. You know, carry the message. Be you. Be you. Cause people like you, Christine are why I got sober because when I was, and that's why I wanted to do this podcast, when I was sitting in my parents' house and they were away um, and I just drank all their liquor and I, when I, I'd now wake up in the morning and I had the shakes. This is like the mm-hmm. last year of my drinking. Mm-hmm. I, I can remember watching documentaries about people who had gotten sober and just crying. Like, being, I mean, I was a shell of a person. I was like, I, I'm never going to be able to do that. But at the same time, watching it and wanting that so badly. And those voices that were out there for me to see celebrities or whoever notable people i was like i they can do it i chris mullen can do it the mm-hmm. basketball player i can do it mm-hmm. dennis eckersley can do it i can do it and here's it's funny i brought up chris mullen i was five no not five i was two years sober i was getting back into my career 
which was, you know, now I'm doing broadcasting, but I'm working in pro basketball. And I was at the NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. I've been there for like two weeks. And I got to like two meetings. And I was like this, you know, the clinch fist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interviewing this guy, Chris Mullen, who is an NBA Hall of Famer. But I knew he was sober. He, had a, he was out there with his sobriety. He'd been sober for many years. And uh, the interview was over. And then I just said, like, hey, man, I'm a year and a half sober. Like, I was like, I'm kind of struggling. And he, were, he lit up like a Christmas tree. He was really? Like, he's like, oh, have you got any meetings here? I'm like, I've been to like one. He's like, oh, come on. He pulls out his phone. He's like, you know, there's a meeting at Harris. There's a good one there. He's oh, looking wow. Through. That's yeah, amazing. I mean, he's like, you know, and we were talking about it. I just remember he looked at me and I was like, I was telling him my program and he could tell I was doing whatever it took. He's like, just keep. Keep and all of a sudden, isn't it amazing? Because all of a sudden, there is a connection there yeah. that nothing else on the planet could compare to that connect. That is a soul recognizing a soul. <laughs> and there's just, there's nothing like it. And no. It's, it's crazy. And it was the wind in my sails that I mm -hmm. needed for that day. And uh, it felt good to, like, talk to him and to thank him for being out there in the public. And also, he was, you know, like my sponsor for the day. You know, listening to me drone on about right. some bullshit and telling me, mm. go to a meeting and shut up, you know? Um, and, you know, I've mentioned about my brother, you know, he was instrumental in me getting this podcast. He was instrumental in my career. Now, you know, now I'm calling games for ESPN. Mm. He Congratulations. Was Thank you. He always moved me in that direction. Hey, you know, you have to take chances, but it's not going to be, you're going to have to hone your craft. It's going to take a while. Like that commitment, mm -hmm. you know, and then, we found out, so my brothers and I, both, both of them sober, Michael and Kevin, and we found out that Kevin was sick. He had had cancer, and it came back um, in, 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 I guess, May, right? So early May, it came back with a vengeance, and he ends up having a couple seizures. I mean, this healthy guy plays music. He's a therapist. He's, he literally played this huge, huge concert in Southern California um, in, like, the first week of May, and now it's May 21st, and he's in the hospital, and they're like, the melanoma is all over his brain. Oh, no. It's, it's a Wednesday. So it's a Wednesday, but I'll take you back. It's a Wednesday morning, and we were planning on going out there to fly there to, to be with him because we knew it was crunch time. We didn't know it was the end of the line. We knew it was crunch time, and, um, but we thought he could beat it. There was mm -hmm. a chance there was different treatment they could do to try to zap it out with radiation. And... Uh, my brother Mike called me on Wednesday morning. He's like, I, I don't even know how to tell you. He's like, because we always fuck around. He's mm -hmm. like, I almost feel like you're going to think I'm joking, but I'm not. He's like, Kevin's going to die. Like, and he's going to die like today or tomorrow. Really? The first, I mean, I got, I went home. I was in a daze. I started to feel this like under, underlying just like pain and tension. But the first place I went was to our, our meeting mm -hmm. at noon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I shared about it because I'd seen people go before me and do that. My father, when he died, the first place I met was our meeting. At that point, we were still at the church. We were meeting in that room. It was COVID. Yeah. And, like, that's what you do. And, like, it doesn't mean you go to a meeting and all your anguish or pain vanishes. But it certainly... You're reminded you're not alone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The other day I went up to a meeting and you were there. I was going through all this bullshit for work. And... uh I felt like, you know, whatever, I'm not being seen or, and then I went into the room with you guys and I was like, oh, I'm like, I'm just an alcoholic, mm -hmm. you know? And my primary purpose is to carry the message, right? And to help people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why I'm able to 
to carry to talk to you like this with such comfort because just like anything else i've done it before mm-hmm. you know like and and meetings and recovery has helped me you know i see it in you um when you talk about you, you're you're convincing either way but when you talk about sobriety you're extremely mm-hmm. convincing but it's easy when you yeah, yeah. It, that's easy when you know you know you know that there's hope you know that there's a solution yeah you know and yeah man i mean when you've been in the battle it's easy to yeah recollect yeah so uh we were, you know we went to california my brother passed away i was able to be there for him we we were able to eulogize him twice, a ceremony. That was beautiful. California. I saw some of the videos. Oh, my god! just amazing. It was amazing. And just, to be able yeah. to, you know, stand in front of a church or people on a beach and uh, and talk about him and, and relate it to sobriety and to talk about how my brothers and I together just vibrated on a different level because we had those relationships. You just break through. Mm-hmm. You know, not only are we brothers, but we're sober. Right. So we have this incredible bond. It was a magical connection. I still have it with my brother, Michael, and I feel like I still have it with Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, it's all good. Like, and, and I feel like Kevin's with me all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I know if there's one thing, and I'm happy I brought him up because I thought about this right after he passed away. If there's one thing, one thing he would want me to do, it was be stay sober and to carry the message. Mm-hmm. That's all he would want. That's all he would want. If I, like... To, to him, I had become a resounding success. When he realized that I had a, a, a pretty good program and that I was not full of shit anymore, you know, mm. and, you know, he was like, I, I, I was in with him, you know. I, I was like, you know, I that had VIP connection. access. Yeah. yeah, brothers aside, that soul-to-soul that soul connection. It. And, uh, yeah, so, I don't know. I, 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 I love you. I love being able to be here with you. Every time I see you, I, I you know, I think we have a very a mutual uh, admiration Amen. for each other. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. How do you start your day mm. every, every morning? Okay. So I, I end up restarting my day a lot because I wake yeah. up yeah, like at four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. You're like, good morning. Good morning. I wake, I wake up very early. Cause I do, you know, I do the morning show here. And, for the longest and, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm up at 3am every morning. Oh wow. And so a lot of time and I look, and this is like, it's, it's to the point where it's problematic for me, and I, I talk to sponsors about it, and I'll start reading uh, the big book in the morning, but I can never stick to it. And I think when it will change is when I'll probably get a different, like, shift in life to start because mm-hmm. I get up at 3 o'clock, and it's like you're just running and gunning. Now, I get to work, and I usually am able to start practicing the principles of sobriety there because I'm interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. usually um, – you get an opportunity. I get opportunities, <laughs> and I and I get an opportunity to share what we have with other people. But I mean, if as you would say, how do I really start my morning? Well, at three a.m. to to seven a.m., I'm I'm really kind of locked in work mode for four hours. Hopefully, from for that four hour period, I don't blow up anything. Mm-hmm. And then at seven thirty, mm-hmm. I usually talk to my friend Murph, who's in AA, and we'll talk. We talk every morning every morning for at least he's actually out hunting right now in the woods um somewhere so he's like kind of off the grid for a little while sure but like he just just today he went but we talk every morning for it could be 20 minutes to 40 minutes oh wow really kind of getting into or it could be 10 minutes but in getting into if i get off the phone with him and i haven't told him something that's Mm -hmm. top of my mind Mm -hmm. i officially have a secret which is no bueno for me like 
if I got, and, and it's one of those things like, you know, he and I will, he'll give me shit about, you know, I, I'll have problems with relationships or with like, so, and he'll call me on the carpet for it. So I, I know if I have something like, I got to tell him about it. You don't want to hear the truth. Yeah. yeah. If, if you hadn't told him, then yeah, you know, yeah. you're hiding from some kind of A hundred percent. So that is, that is really how I start, how I start my day is like, there's always, there's a conversation with another sober guy who I'm a hundred percent accountable to. And he's not my sponsor. Um, and he knows he's not, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? He doesn't think he is. And I don't think he is. I have mm -hmm. a sponsor, but that's a very, a relationship I'm really lucky to have. Well, that's a spiritual partner. And, and even people that, that I talk to that aren't working a program, I say, if you don't have a spiritual partner, someone that you have given authority to call you on your shit, yeah. you know, and I'm not talking about a sponsor. I'm not talking about a spouse. I'm not talking about one of your, I'm talking about a, a, a person who doesn't have a, a, a dog in your fight, if you will, that, that will say to you, you know, maybe you're being a little selfish or have you thought of it this way? And you don't get to offensive yeah. you know i think everyone should have a spiritual partner yeah you know I, I, they're just there's certain things you you can't or won't say to a spouse or a family member or something and and carrying those secrets man i don't care if you're if you're an addict or not will make you sick in some form or fashion yeah you know whether it be depression anxiety um anger you know whatever the case may be there's there's going to be a sickness with with secrets, period. Secrets, well, well, that will drive you to drink again, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and and if you're not drinking, secrets will just cause you to continue to live in shame, right? And and there's and there's and there's symptoms of that, yeah, you know, yeah, that come out, yeah. And so I I I, I appreciate you saying that, but about the spiritual partner because he's another dude. So right, I'm like, oh, spiritual, mm -hmm. I'm a partner, but he is mm -hmm. my spiritual partner, yeah. you know? Well, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think that's how God intended us to yeah. be, you know, the, uh, you know, these souls. And that's kind of even, even all the way down to my children, I've explained to them, did you grow in my body? Yes. But aside from that, you're a, a soul that God put on this earth to be on a path that has none of my business, yeah. you know, um, you know, it, it, and I'm a soul that's, it, you know, we're not going to, it's not a tag team sport this life. <laughs> it's not. But if you can have another soul that you don't have that human connection with that that can share things with you yeah there's just nothing like that to unburden yourself yeah you know with a trusted person yeah there's just nothing like yeah, it well and it's it's hard to come by mm -hmm. do you think i mean it's hard. oh 100 yeah. percent. i mean well shit look what it took for us to, i mean that's what a, uh, to me that's what a sponsor is yeah. is a spiritual partner yeah. you know um look what it took for me to even consider and then i held back i don't know how much from her for the longest until she was finally like i'm sick of your shit yeah what tell did she me say? the thing what did she say part so part of your story i'm sure you've said it a bunch on here so you were in the parking lot and there's something that she asked you or she asked me to, well, that you were that losing was, your, you were losing your mind. That crying. was that, that was the day, March 14, 2012, that I, I had out in China spring, Texas. I had, um, that morning I got up and I had, I was gathering all the pills I could find. I was, I was going to check out. I was out. I was done. I could not stand me any longer. I just couldn't. And, and I, I needed to put me out of my family's misery. You know, they, they just watching my, said my last drunk was a Sam size bottle of Listerine. Yeah. You know, who, who the fuck does that? <laughs> who does a, that? A drunk, I mean, I, who, yeah. I mean, you know, who does that? And I remember his face when he looked at me and said, is it bad that I wish that was vodka? 
because vodka was my thing. Yeah. You know, and um, I just, I was out. So when, when I drove into town, she had talked me into, uh, she called, you know, you, you and I both know that it, oh, yeah. it wasn't her per se calling, but the right time. And she said what, you know, she knew, I didn't tell her, but um, she could hear it in my voice. And she said, what's an, what's an hour? Just, just meet me at the meet. What's an hour? You know, meeting lasts an hour, then you can go do whatever you want to do. And so, yeah, I, I met her in the parking lot and got in her car, and she asked me to, to ask God what he thought of me. That was it, yeah. yeah. I thought, seriously? <laughs> I mean, you know, because, because, because being the selfish, self-centered person, you certainly have to think about me what I think about me. And I thought I was the biggest piece of shit that was walking the earth. Yeah. They have to, you know, out there, there's no way they can't think about me the same way I think about me. Yeah. Right. So God, whatever God you're speaking of, can't imagine what. So I'm just going to invite him to zap me or, you know, whatever it is, lightning bolts or whatever it is. You know, um, yeah, man, that that was. But and the I, best part about it is you say and this I just thought of this. You you figured that she asked everybody that question. Yes. But she says at the time yes. she had no idea no, what to well, do. Well, it wasn't actually <laughs> That's until divine, right? it wasn't actually until um it wasn't actually until a little over a year later that that I happened to ask her. Maybe she mentioned she had a new sponsor or something. I'm like, oh, have you asked them the question? You know, <laughs> thinking it. She's like, you, I, I had never done that before because I remember when I, when I did. Knowing what, the two of the characters in the I know, story, right? I, I love the two of you. But, like, but so you got to awesome. imagine, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and and you know, she's, I'm, I'm wailing, I'm, I'm just so distraught, and she's going, I want you to, in her calm voice, because you do know her, mm-hmm. which, which you know, I, I want you to ask God what He thinks about you. And when I finally did it, and, and, you know, God himself said, you are worthy. And, and I was instantly calm. And I remember looking at her, and I mean, just, just the oh shit that was on her face. It's like, because that was, I can't imagine what that was like for her to witness. Yeah. You know, that yeah. was, um, that was a, yeah, that was a day that I knew I was sober. I knew I was sober. And that was that. That's just like my style, though. That he has to go to that extent, <laughs> you know, to to get my attention. Because I had been, I had been to treatment. Yeah. I went to a very expensive treatment down in Austin, um, and I was there for thirty three days. And and I came home and I was sober, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I and I went to meetings, but I didn't get a sponsor, right? And so if you're gonna do this deal. There's a certain way it's suggested. We only make suggestions, but funny thing is, we only have one suggestion, and that's work the steps. Only one suggestion. Which changed your life. Oh, yeah, and and it wasn't. And and shortly after, you know, I didn't get a sponsor, and within six months, I'm drinking Listerine. Mm -hmm. You know, um, passing out, going into seizures, and you know, so yeah, I I didn't. I hadn't had enough. Right. And I thought being I didn't know at the time the difference between sobriety and recovery. I had no clue the major difference. I don't want to be sober. I want to be in recovery. Yeah. Right. Because you, you know, alcohol was my solution. You take my solution away. I want to eat a bullet. Yeah. Right. Recovery is where it's at. And, and if you just want to shove it down people's throats when you're, you know, it's like, don't you know? No, shit. I'm the one that was out in China Spring, Texas, drinking Listerine. I didn't know. Yeah. You know, it just, you know, the whole it takes what it takes. And damn, it's just 
if people knew, you know, and going through the steps, thinking that I had this, you know, that, that you know, my sponsor, when I told her certain things, that she'd run screaming for the cops, you know, or, <laughs> or, 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 a, or a loony bin to come put a, a, a funny jacket on me or something. But to see that the boogeyman was nothing yeah. as big as what I'd made it. Yeah. Nothing. You know, for me to say something to her and just kind of grab onto the table and she goes, oh, girl, that ain't, that ain't nothing. And, you know, and you're just going, oh, you suck worse than me. Yeah, and these you people know, who look like somebody who you would want to look like and you think that they're perfect and put together yes. so they could never be where. They could have yeah. never been as bad. But talk it's about terminal, it's terminal uniqueness. Yes, yes, and that will kill you. Bullshit. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's so bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And I still have it. Eleven and a half years later, I still have yeah, it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And it, yeah, and I. But if that's I'm, why it's a daily. That's why you practice this program. Like you don't, like you said, and like I said, like you can, you can't just drop in to recovery mm -hmm. and think you're going to get it. Like mm -hmm. every day you wake up, you have to practice it. And 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 you ask me what I do every morning. It looks different for for different people. Mm -hmm. But if you don't practice this this way of life in one way or another, hopefully more ways than one every day. You will drink again. That's my experience. That's exactly right. You well, will drink again. Well, 100% of the time, yeah. 100% of the time, you ask someone who has relapsed, what happened? This this person is not going to say, I was going to meetings, I was meeting with my sponsor, and yeah. I was reading the literature. Yeah. Never in the history of ever. Yeah. You know, and I'm not someone who, who says that, you know, AA is the only way to get sober. Mm -hmm. What I can tell you is there's not a single human being that I have met that has followed this path of recovery that gets to do this every single day that is that is relapsed not one not one yeah well and and, and it goes back to we heard it in, in our, our group the other day somebody was saying it like he was asking a guy who relapsed like well are you meeting with your sponsors like no are you working the steps no you're going to meetings no um are you been praying no he's like well what, what the hell did you relapse from yeah there's nothing to read like yeah. like you were just waiting to drink you know, and, and, and then you're so, you're surprised. You know, they, it, it gets me when the, when someone someone relapses and they'll go, I just don't know what happened. Yeah. Let me help you. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me let me help you understand. Yeah. Yeah, and and but it but it is, I, and and it's so funny how how later on in recovery it's like. It's like I can see I can see something, and I'm like, why don't you see it? But 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 God has a way. The program has a way of reminding me. But for the grace of God, there I am. Yes. Uh huh. There I am. So you just you give the grace that you needed, you know, back when you were in that position, and you know that whatever the plan is, you just be there to to try to help pick up the pieces or be of service wherever you can. And that keeps the ball rolling for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you for being here. I Honestly, just love I you was, to pieces. I, and I love you to pieces right back. And it was really like a privilege. I, I, you know, I come here and we share time together. But you know, you've helped me. Like that's what this is about. Mm -hmm. Like I. Honestly, I was looking forward to doing this. Sometimes you do something where it'll involve sobriety. You're like, oh, okay, I got to drag my ass there. And then it works. But I was looking forward to this the whole time. But then now I, I feel like, uh, you know, I got to do something at noon and I'm skywalking. So That's it's amazing. perfect. Tell the people about your podcast. My podcast is The Payoff with Pete. Um, and it's just like Christine's. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> See, yeah. Carrying the message. Yeah, man. we carry the message. And, you know, I, the reason for it was because, and it's kind of what my brother and I talked about. Uh, you know, not everybody is ready mm -hmm. to go 
full bore with mm-hmm. this thing. Um, and my experience was watching documentaries about guys who got sober. Or I read this book called um, Moments of Clarity, and it was a bunch of different celebrities who had gotten sober. It was like Jamie Lee Curtis had a chapter. Alec Baldwin had a chapter. Lou Gossett Gossett Jr. had a chapter. Oh, wow. Like, it was so cool. And they all talked about how they got sober and their moments of clarity. And I remember reading that and being like, huh. So I wanted to give people the opportunity to drop in and just hear how other people got this. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to go to rehab or if you're listening to it, you should probably go to a meeting. But if that's all you can muster, then that's a seed that's going to be planted for you that day. Right. So that's that's what it's all about. So yeah, the payoff with Pete, Rogue Media Network. That's awesome. Yeah, uh-huh. that's awesome. I love you. Yeah, I love thank you too. You. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Driven Sobriety Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, and of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com, and of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts: iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.